Let's turn back over to Ephesians chapter 1. Last night I, I read basically uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and we focused on Ephesians 1, 7, which it's talking about some of the blessings that God has given us through Jesus. And in verse 7 it says, In whom we have redemption. Notice it says we have. This isn't something that is off in the future that we're awaiting for, but we have. Past tense. It's already real. It's a done deal. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. This same thing is said word for word in Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. It just changes one word over there. It says we have redemption through His blood. It says even the forgiveness of sins. It's just emphasizing that this redemption is talking about the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And then in verse 14, it says that we are waiting for the redemption of the purchased possession. And I brought out last night that there are different... that Jesus purchased redemption for us, but not all of our uh, person has been totally redeemed. We are a spirit, soul, and body... And the spirit part of us has already been redeemed. The forgiveness in our spirit is a done deal. It's complete. It's over with. But we are still waiting on the redemption of our physical body and of our soulish man. But our spirit redemption is already complete, which is what Romans, I mean Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 is saying. We already have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. I just want to amplify on this this morning, and I'm going to say some things here that if you've heard me say this, maybe this you know won't shock you, but if you've never heard me say this, this is going to be totally different than what most people believe. Most people do not believe that redemption is a completed, done work. They believe that it's a work in progress and that every time you sin, you have to run to the Lord and get that sin forgiven. And they see redemption as an ongoing thing, which, the, which there is a physical body that is going to be redeemed. We're waiting for the redemption of that, and our soul is going to be changed. But our spirit salvation is complete. It's done, and it's over with. And I want to share some scriptures with you that if you can receive this this morning, this will change your life. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's turn over there and look at this. And I wish I had time to put the whole book of Hebrews in proper context. This is Charlie's favorite book, Hebrews, amen. He loves teaching on Melchizedek. We were over in England and it was funny. But anyway, the book of Hebrews is showing the superiority of Jesus over everything else that ever happened in the Old Covenant. It starts in the very first chapter of Hebrews by saying in verse 3 that Jesus is the express image of the Father, an exact representation. God spoke in different ways in times past, but in these last days He's used Jesus. Jesus is a perfect representation, and He shows in chapter 1 that Jesus is better than any angel. So therefore, the prophecies, the words that were given through angels in the Old Testament are superseded by what Jesus brought. And it begins to show all of these things. It talks about the priesthood. It talks about the law being changed, about the reason that the temple and the tabernacle are no longer in use. That's what all of the book of Hebrews is about. And when you come to chapter 9, he begins in the very first few verses of chapter 9 contrasting the Old Testament uh, pieces that were in the temple, such as the tabernacle, the candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar, and all of these things, and showing that they were only pictures of things that are now reality. And we don't need the pictures anymore because we got the real thing. That's the point that he's been making. And he's now contrasting the way Jesus operates as high priest compared to the way that the high priesthood operated in the old covenant. And so let's drop down in Hebrews chapter 9. In verse 11, it says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. He's talking about that Jesus serves in the true tabernacle, the true temple in heaven. I don't know if any of you have picked this up, but when Moses was given the instructions about how to build the tabernacle, the Lord took him up into Mount Sinai and he saw the temple in heaven. It says, make all things according to the pattern which was shown you in the mount. He literally saw, in heaven there is a temple. 
in heaven, Jesus entered into the temple and put his blood on the altar. And the temple that was built here on the earth was patterned after the temple that's in heaven. And this is what he's talking about, that Jesus now is a true minister of the true tabernacle, the one that's in heaven, not the one that was made with hands here on this earth. And in verse 12, it says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Again, you have to kind of get into the mindset of the book of Hebrews to get the full impact of this. I'll be trying to amplify this and draw this out. But it's, it's really significant here that what he's doing is contrasting the way the Old Testament priest offered offerings with the way that Jesus does it. And one of the major differences is that it says that Jesus entered in once, once only, into the holy place and obtained eternal redemption for us. Colossians 1.14, Ephesians 1.7 says redemption is the forgiveness of our sins. So put all of this together and what this says, Jesus only offered a sacrifice for your sins one time and he obtained eternal forgiveness of sins. Eternal redemption. Again, I don't know if you understand this. Some people, it's so far different than what we've heard that they think, oh, surely he can't be meaning what he's saying. So let me say it again. It's eternal redemption. You do not have to run to God every time you fail, every time you sin and say, oh, God, forgive me, get this sin under the blood. This is terminology that's very typical in the Christian realm. That every time you sin, you've got to repent and get that sin back under the blood. And there's varying degrees of consequences. If you're more evangelical, you won't believe that you lose your salvation every time you sin, but God won't fellowship with you as long as you've got any sin in your life. God won't answer your prayers. You aren't going to be blessed. God can't really move in your life. God can't use a dirty vessel. So they believe that you don't totally lose your relationship with God, but you lose all the benefits of your relationship in this life until you get that sin confessed and under the blood. If you're a Pentecostal, uh, the extreme Pentecostals believe that every time you sin, you actually lose your salvation. They call it backslide. And you, if you were to die in a backslidden state, if you were to die with an unconfessed sin in your life, you would die and go to hell even though you'd been born again for 20 years. You'd led a million people to the Lord that you'd been seeking God and loving Him. But if you mess up one time, like if you go do something wrong and you have a car wreck and you die before you get an opportunity to confess it, you die and go to hell. You know what? That is not eternal redemption. That is only forgiven until the next time you sin. And then you've got to get that sin under the blood and make sure that it's covered. And what this does, it takes redemption away from what Jesus did. And it's all conditional upon you making sure that you've got everything confessed and everything forgiven. I don't know if you've thought through this. Again, we receive so many things just because it's been said so often. It's like propaganda. After a while, you say something so long, you begin to believe it. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. This Scripture is contrasting the way things were done under the Old Covenant where the sacrifices were made over and over and over and you had to make a sacrifice every time you sinned. And it's contrasting. It's saying Jesus only entered into the holy place in heaven one time and obtained eternal, eternal redemption for you. Eternal forgiveness of sins. All of your sins, when you get born again, all of your sins, past, present, and even sins you haven't committed yet are forgiven. And somebody says, how could God forgive a sin before you commit it? Well, you better hope God can forgive a sin before you commit it because He only died for your sins one time 2,000 years ago. And if He can't forgive a sin before you commit it, you can't get your sins forgiven. Jesus forgave the sins of the entire world. I don't know exactly how he did it, but I'm sure he did it honestly. Amen. 
The Lord is able to see and perceive everything that we'll ever do and every sin that you have or will ever commit. Every sin that will be committed, if the Lord was tearing, if the world lasts another thousand years, everything that will ever be done has already been paid for through the death and the atonement of the Lord Jesus. Sin has been dealt with. I used this scripture last night. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says that he is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, talking about Christians, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the entire world have been paid for. Every person's sins have been paid for. Basically, the church is saying, repent or else you're going to hell for your sins. And they're making people think it's their individual acts of sin that are sending them to hell. Well, now, prior to Jesus, it is true that your individual acts of sin were things that stood between you and God. And yes, you had to have them atoned for and stuff. But since Jesus came, Jesus paid for all sin, past, present, and future tense sins. Sin is out of the question. Sin is not the issue now. What the issue is, is have you accepted the payment for your sins? It all comes down to, is Jesus your Lord? If Jesus is your Lord, then God accepts you and you are redeemed and you are in right standing with God regardless of what your actions are like. Most people choke on that like, this this can't be. And yet this says that Jesus entered in one time and obtained eternal redemption. If words mean anything, this is different than what we're hearing. Most Christians, their whole life, once you get born again, revolves around sin. Oh God, forgive me of this. Oh God, help me to overcome this. Oh God, help me to do this. And it's all about the problems in sin and our sense of unworthiness. And that's a wrong mindset. Matter of fact, I'll show you in chapter 10. I, I need to... Quit taking these side trails and just keep going. But chapter 10, verse 1 and 2 says you should have no more conscience of sin. No more sin consciousness. There's not one out of 10,000 Christians that goes around without sin consciousness. Most of us are constantly feeling inferior and failures. And, oh God, how could you love me? How could you use me? You know, it's subtle. Sometimes people don't recognize, but... If I was to testify to you about the miracles that I've seen, many of you have heard me mention that our son was raised from the dead after being dead for five hours and came back and was supernaturally raised from the dead. Most of you believe in stuff like that. Most of you believe in the supernatural power of God. I mean, this is Friday morning. This isn't your nod to God crowd. This is hardcore fanatics. You're stark raving mad certifiable fanatics. And if you aren't a fanatic, then a fanatic drug you here. It's one of those two. You're people that believe that God can do anything. And if somebody fell over dead right here, and if I said, how many of you believe God can raise them from the dead? Most of you would be right with me. Amen. Amen. But you know where I'd lose the vast majority of you is when I say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and you pray for them. And all of a sudden, you were just fine believing that God raises from the dead as long as I'm doing the praying. Matt, you'd want to get up here and you want to see it. But when I say you come up here, all of a sudden, this faith and anticipation turns into fear and into dread. Now think about what changed. It's not that you doubt God can do it. You know what you're doubting? You don't... There's nobody in here that doubts that God can do miracles and that God can heal and God can do things. What you're doubting is whether God will do it through you because you believe that you have to be holy or worthy or something so that God will flow through you. The thing that Satan gets you on isn't God has the ability. It's whether you are worthy to receive. Will God do it for you? You don't doubt his ability. You doubt his willingness to do it. Because we are sin conscious. You know why you have more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers? It's because you know you better than you know me. If you knew me as well as you know you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers. But you think that a preacher's got it all together. You think that we're doing everything right and that we must be holy. But you know you aren't holy. 
You know your thoughts. You know what you've done. But the truth is, you know what? I can't get anything from God based on my actions either. That's the reason we use the name of Jesus and pray in His name and get it through who He is. See, this sense of sin consciousness is what is hindering us. Matter of fact, let's just keep reading here. In verse uh, 13, it says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, that was the Old Testament way of doing it, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice that the blood of Jesus is supposed to purge your conscience from dead works so that you can serve the living God. If your conscience hasn't been purged, then you aren't able to serve the living God. And this is where most Christians are. We have been taught not eternal redemption, but momentary redemption until the next time you sin. And then that sin has to be under the blood. And then the next time you sin, and so we are in and out. And sometimes God is willing to answer our prayers and sometimes He isn't because we're just so bad. We've been taught momentary redemption instead of eternal redemption and our conscience isn't purged and therefore we aren't effective serving the living God. And that's a powerful statement. But that really is at the root of what's going on. It's not that you doubt God can do it. You doubt will He do it because you know you don't deserve it. You've got to get your conscience purged and that's only through understanding eternal redemption. It's your spirit that has been made holy. It's your spirit that has been forgiven of all sins. And God is the spirit, John 4, 24. God looks at you in the spirit realm. God moves in your life based on who you are in the spirit, not based on what you are doing in your physical body, actions, thoughts. Boy, those are powerful statements. In verse 15, he says, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Here again is this same concept. Eternal inheritance. The ultra-Pentecostal believe in just momentary inheritance until the next time you sin. And then every time you sin, sin can't enter into heaven. And so if you've got sin in your life, you lose your salvation. You're backslid. If you were to die in that state, you'd go to hell. Even though you've been born again and serving God for 20 years, you've got to get it back under the blood and get born again again. They wouldn't, use, they wouldn't say it that way, but that's what that is. Praying through and getting back into fellowship with God is getting born again again. And so you're saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, born again, 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 again. That's the way that a lot of people believe. That's not eternal inheritance. That's not eternal redemption. It, what it does, it puts our relationship all on us and all on what we do instead of what Jesus did for us. If I really believed that that was true, you know what I would do? We had six people last night get born again. And we had 57 people pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit last night. If I really believe that the only way for you to make it to heaven is to make sure that you don't have any sin in your life. If you have any sin, you lose your salvation and then it's dependent on whether you got it back under the blood and repented and came back. If I thought that that was true, then I'd have just killed those six people down here. I might go to hell for killing them, but that's the only way they'd ever get to heaven. Amen. Just kill you because I can guarantee you if it's all dependent upon you having everything confessed, you can't live that way. And some people say, oh, yeah, you can. You know, I, I believe that you shouldn't go commit adultery and all this. I believe that too. But, you know, sin, the Bible says, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Sin isn't just the terrible bad thing. Sin is when you fail in any area. Did you know if you are knowing that you should be giving and you aren't giving properly, if you're just grudgingly, if you're giving grudgingly and of necessity, but you aren't doing it with a cheerful heart, did you know you're in sin? What would happen if you were to die and you weren't the proper giver? What if you haven't given with all the right attitudes? Does that mean you go to hell? Did you know that you're supposed to obey the laws of the land? Romans chapter 13 tells you to obey the laws of the land. If the speed limit's 55 and if you're going 56 and have a car accident and die, do you go to hell because you broke the law of the land? 
See, if you really start looking at things from a scriptural perspective, it says in James 2.10, if I keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, I become guilty of all. People who believe that you're saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, that you're only momentarily redeemed until the next time you sin and you've got to make sure that you get every sin confessed, the only way they can even begin to start putting that into practice is to start categorizing sin and saying, well, there's big sins and then there's little sins. There's acceptable sins and there's unacceptable sins. We all sin and I'm not going to be perfect. I may not always love people the way I should. I may not think of other people. I might be selfish. I might have done that, but those are acceptable sins. Nope. The Bible says if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you are guilty of everything. I've never gone out and committed adultery. I've never committed homosexuality. I've never stolen. I've never done things like this. But you know what? I'm guilty of all of those things because I've been selfish, because I have not put God first, because I haven't sought God with my whole heart. If you break one, you're guilty of everything. If you believe that you have to keep everything maintained and confessed and under the blood and only if you've got everything perfect will God accept you, you will never make it to heaven. You will never have any confidence. And that's where most of Christianity lives because they haven't understood eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. And just for time's sake, I'm going to skip on down to verse 23. It says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He's talking about the Old Testament sacrifices had to have blood of animals and things like that. And they had golden implements. But in heaven, we got the real deal. No longer uh, just pictures and symbols, but we've got the real thing in heaven. Verse 24, it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is and as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. These verses make four times in this ninth chapter that he says once Jesus entered in and obtained eternal redemption, forgiveness of sins, eternal inheritance, once Jesus made a price, one time Jesus offered his life. He is not going to offer his life multiple times. Every time a person gets born again, Jesus doesn't have to re-offer his sacrifice. He paid for the sins of the entire world. They're wiped out. Sin is not the issue. It's an issue of have you put faith in Jesus? If you have made Jesus your Savior, then He redeemed you from all sin, past, present, and even future tense sin. And God is not in heaven imputing your sins unto you. It says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that God was in Christ not uh, imputing man's trespass, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing man's trespasses unto them. And He committed unto us this same message of reconciliation not imputing people's trespasses unto them. The church isn't preaching the same message. Now, there are some churches that are, but I'm saying as a whole, the church is preaching that it's your sins every time you sin. That's the reason God hasn't healed you. That's the reason God won't bless you. You've got sin in your life. you got this. That's not the issue. Jesus paid for your sins. You are eternally redeemed from sin. Even lost people have had their sins forgiven. They aren't going to go to hell for their individual acts of sin. They will go to hell if they continue to reject their Savior, the one who paid for their sins. It's all about acceptance or rejection of Jesus. And yet we've made the issue all about these things that we do. I know somebody's listening to me saying, boy, you're encouraging sin, saying it doesn't matter. I'm not. I hadn't got time to... I hadn't even got time to put that in its proper perspective. But you know, I'm glad God called me to preach grace. Because I've lived holier than most of you have ever thought about living. 
I have never said a word of profanity in all my 58 years. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never even tasted coffee. Some of you think, coffee? <laughs> what are you saying? Are you saying that coffee and booze are the same thing? No, I'm not saying. I'm just saying, you know, the Bible says in Rome, uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 18, you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. So you got a scripture to stand on for drinking coffee. I'm just saying, I have lived a super holy life. I am not preaching this so that I can go live in sin. The Bible says in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared unto all men. Verse 12, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. If you truly understand what I'm saying about the love of God and the grace of God, this doesn't embolden you to go sin. It doesn't make you want to go live in sin. It'll make you love God so much to think that He paid for all of your sins that you'll live holier accidentally than you ever lived on purpose before. I am not preaching living in sin, but I'm saying that it is not your individual acts of sin that break fellowship and relationship and keep God from moving in your life. Sin has been paid for. It is eternally redeemed. The sin question is over. Jesus entered in once and He paid for the sins of the whole world. And after you get born again, if you sin, you don't have to go back and grovel in the dirt and repent. Oh, God, would you please forgive me? And if you don't somehow or another press through and get his forgiveness and die, you'd go to hell because you got an unconfessed sin in your life. Forgive me for saying so. I know that this, some of you may take offense at this, but that is just nothing but religion. That is something that is damning and hurting people. It is not good. It puts you as your own Savior. You've got to maintain your own salvation. It's wrong. And that's the reason that we believe God can do all of these things, but we aren't experiencing it because we don't feel worthy. We've, we haven't believed the truth. So it goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 1, For the law, having those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The Old Testament sacrifices couldn't work. They were only pictures, types, shadows. They didn't really do anything. You know, there are dozens of verses in the Old Testament where the Lord says, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Away from me. I hate your sacrifices. Because they were only symbolic. They were pointing towards something and the people had gotten so involved in the symbolism that they were worshiping the symbolism and yet their heart was far removed from God. It isn't the Old Testament sacrifices that were the thing. They were only pictures and, and so they couldn't do anything. They couldn't make the comers thereunto perfect in their conscience. In verse 2 it says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? If the Old Testament sacrifices could have worked, even under the Old Testament scheme of things, they would have quit offering sacrifices. But they couldn't work in the Old Testament because they were only types and shadows. And so, therefore, every time you sin... Or every year there was a day of atonement where you had to offer a new sacrifice in your sins and mentioning your sins. And there was constant uh, consciousness of sin and a repenting of sin because they were just pictures and shadows. They couldn't really work. But in contrast, the New Testament sacrifice is real and it did work and we don't have to re-offer Jesus' blood over and over and over and over and over every time you sin. You were eternally redeemed, eternally forgiven of sins, eternal inheritance. One sacrifice, once He offered it. Radical truth. Verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. We have now got a sacrifice that isn't just symbolic. It's the real deal. The blood of Jesus has brought us eternal redemption, eternal inheritance, and therefore we should have no more conscience of sin. You should not be sin conscious. Radical. You know why I'm in a convention center? Because there's not one out of a thousand churches that'll let me preach this. Dan and Nancy Thompson will let me preach it. I think Rob and Mary will let me preach it. There's a few people. But you know what? 
You can't preach this in most churches. And yet, I'm reading Scripture. You know, most people don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. Most people believe things, and I'm going to believe this. I don't care what the Bible says. This is the way we've done it forever. Every time you sin, you've got to repent. You've got to get it back under the blood, and you're, you're backslid, and you've got to pray through. Who cares what the Bible says? The Bible says that tradition and doctrines of men make the Word of God of none effect. We've got to get to a place to where the Word of God dominates us. There should be no more conscience of sin. When you enter into the presence of the Lord, it shouldn't be, oh God, I'm so sorry. I know I haven't been praying. I know I hadn't done this. And you mention all of your sins real quickly in hopes that if you'll mention them, God won't mention them. You just make sure you get them all out on the table. Oh, and you come in talking about, oh God, and you, we, it's all about, oh God, I know I'm not worthy. I know I don't deserve this. You know what that is? Sin conscious. We ought to get to where we come in and instead of talking about how sorry you are, talk about how wonderful God is to love somebody as sorry as you are. Amen. Praise God that Father, even though I don't do everything right, you love me. I'm eternally redeemed. I'm e- I've got eternal inheritance. Man, I am sanctified through the one offering. You love me. You're pleased with me. I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm highly favored. Man, praise God for what He's done instead of what you haven't done. And so in verse 3 it says, But in those sacrifices, Old Testament sacrifices, there is a remembrance again every year of sins, every year. Did you know in most churches, most Christians today, there is a remembrance made of sins. Not every year, every minute, every day. Constantly sin conscious. In verse 4 it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Old Testament sacrifices were only types and shadows. They didn't do anything. They were symbolic. There wasn't any saving power in them. It's impossible that they could ever take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body... Hast thou prepared me? Now this is a quotation from where? It's Psalms 40, I believe it is, 6 through 8. And it's an Old Testament sacrifice, and Jesus was speaking prophetically through David, and he says, uh, Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will, O God. This was Jesus speaking prophetically, and now it's being quoted as this was Jesus. This was the Savior speaking these things through David. In verse 8, he says, Above when he said, Sacrifice and offerings, and uh, let's see, Sacrifice and burnt offerings, and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, after he had said that, he said, Lo, I come in the, uh, to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. He took away the Old Testament sacrificial system, of blood, of bulls and of goats, and offering them over and over and over and put in this New Testament system of one sacrifice for sins forever. And um, in verse 10, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Man, how plain can you get this? The word sanctified, if you look it up, it means to make holy, to purify, to consecrate. You were made holy, perfect, pure through the one sacrifice of Jesus once for all. Actually, the word for all is italicized, means it was put in by the translators. It, it, translators. it literally means we were sanctified through the one offering of Jesus once. Once. It's done. It's over. You don't have to get re-sanctified. There are entire denominations that are trying to become sanctified. Oh God, make me sanctified. Well, if you got born again, you were instantly sanctified. 
Again, I haven't got time to preach on this, but I know somebody's thinking this, so let me just mention it real quickly. And you need to, you need to get my teaching on spirit, soul, and body. But some people, when you're talking about that you're holy and that you're pure, you go look in the mirror and you say, this is holy. And then you think about your actions and thoughts and some of your attitudes and you say, man, I know I struggle with pornography and I, I just can't understand how I'm holy. That's because you're only looking on this physical outer man and you're looking in the soulish realm. But in your spirit, the born again part of you was sanctified and perfected forever. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, we read that last night, says once you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, vacuum packed. You were created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4.24 says you were created in righteousness and true holiness. And then immediately you're vacuum packed and that spirit, when you sin, sin enters into your body and it'll give Satan an inroad against you in the physical realm with sickness and things like this. Or it'll enter into your soulish realm, your emotions and your mental part and it'll give Satan an inroad with depression and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. But it can't penetrate your spirit. Your spirit is vacuum packed, sealed, and that sin doesn't penetrate. It stays righteous and truly holy once and for all. Man, that is good news. I'd make a Baptist shout. It says, but by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What a tremendous statement. In verse 11, and every priest, he's contrasting now with this once for all salvation versus the way it was done in the Old Testament, the way it's done in most churches today. He says, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. See, some people up in the 10th verse when it says by the one Offering, we are sanctified once for all. Some people say, well, that means that one offering was for all people, but not for all times. You've got to reappropriate it and reapply it. Well, if you just keep reading in context, verse 12 says, This man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Not talking about just one sacrifice for all people, but one sacrifice for all people for all time. Forever. It's over. One sacrifice dealt with sin. One drop of the blood of Jesus is worth more than all of the sin of the entire human race from, uh, from eternity past to eternity future. Jesus' blood is so much purer than our ungodliness is that it has more than compensated. The price that was paid was greater than the debt that was owed. Jesus' blood has totally obliterated sin. Sin is not standing between you and God. If you have made Jesus your Lord, you are eternally redeemed. You've got eternal inheritance. One sacrifice for sins forever. After he did that, he sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering. Here again, if you are following this, the whole emphasis is on the fact that this is once. He entered in once into the holy place. Once he obtained salvation. Once he's done this. The priests do it over and over. The church today has to, you get to have to get saved over and over and born again and again and do all of this. But the Bible says once, once Jesus dealt with this. Verse 14 says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 10 says you were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14 says if you were sanctified, you are perfected forever. That's talking about length of time, not just until the next time you sin, until the next time you fail. You were sanctified and perfected forever. Just in case anybody doubts that this is talking about the spirit, you think you're looking for this in your physical body. You're looking for your physical body to be perfect or your mind to be perfect. Look over in chapter 12 and in verse 22, he says, But you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. It's your spirit that was made perfect. 
Your spirit is perfect. And again, I refer back to Ephesians 1, 13, that once you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until you get a glorified body and soul. But you are now sealed. You were made perfect in your spirit and then immediately sealed by the Holy Spirit. And if you sin, that sin doesn't enter into your spirit. It'll corrupt your body. It'll give Satan an access to your mind. You don't want to do that. Satan only comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. John 10, 10. So don't give Satan inroad into your life. Don't go live in sin. I am not preaching living in sin. Sin will hurt you. Romans 6, 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, you are yielding to the author, the instigator of that sin, which is Satan. And Satan only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you do that, Satan is going to eat your lunch and pop the bag. You don't want to give inroad to the devil. But, we will because we all come short. We all fall. If you don't fall in the overt things, if you don't go commit adultery and get drunk and do dope and do things like that, you're going to fall in the sense that you're selfish and you put yourself ahead of other people and you judge other people and you gossip and you are critical and you hurt people and you're going to fall. You are going to make mistakes. And when you do, instead of feeling like, oh God, I've lost what I had with you. I've got to get back. I've got to get that confessed and under the blood. What a blessing it is to know that God is a spirit, John 4, 24, and that God looks at you in the spirit realm. And in the spirit, your spirit has been made perfect, sanctified and perfected forever. And that you, right in the midst of failure, can say, Father, thank you that I haven't lost a thing, that you still love me, that you're pleased with me. Father, thank you that because of Jesus, I've got eternal redemption, eternal forgiveness of sins. Thank you that those sins I hadn't even committed are already forgiven. And then you just turn from that sin, not in order to get God loving you again or in order that God will answer your prayers, but so that you can shut the door on the devil, so that you won't cooperate with the devil. You turn away from it. If you take what I'm saying here today and say, man, I'm wonderful. My sins are all forgiven. No consequences. That's not what I'm preaching. I'm preaching that there's consequences to sin. I'm just saying that God's not going to give them to you. God's not going to judge your sin because He's already judged your sin in Jesus. He's already put your sins upon Jesus. And if He judges you for your sins and He judged Jesus for your sins, that's double jeopardy. God won't do that. God's not going to judge you for your sins. He's not going to reject you. But does that mean you're free to go live in sin? It means that you're free in the sense that God's going to still love you, but you're stupid if you go live in sin. Because, man, Satan is going to take advantage of that. If you go out here and say, man, it's wonderful. I can go a thousand miles an hour now in my car. Nobody can catch me because, after all, I'm free. I'm forgiven. You know what? There are consequences. You can't drive on our roads at a thousand miles an hour. You're going to crash. You're going to burn. And if they if they don't uh, scrape you up off the pavement, then somebody's going to pull you over and give you a ticket. And there's going to be consequences. And you do it often enough, you'll get put in jail. You can go rob a bank. And you know what? God will still love you because God's a spirit. And he sees you in the spirit realm. And you're righteous and holy and pure. But if you go rob a bank, they're going to catch you. And they're going to put you in the slammer. And you're going to suffer for it. And there are consequences to your sin. If you go out and strive with people and criticize people and get into fights because after all, God's forgiven me and I don't have to be nice anymore because I'm already forgiven. I don't have to earn God's favor. I can just go live like the devil. You know what? God will still love you because if you're truly born again, you're sanctified and perfected forever. But I guarantee you, you're going to ruin relationships. It says this over in Galatians chapter 5. It says, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. And in the context, he was talking about stand fast in this liberty, the exact things we're talking about. Don't be entangled again with this yoke of bondage, thinking you've got to do everything right. It's all by the grace of God. But then he comes back and he says in verse 13, But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. If you just take this liberty as an occasion to the flesh and go live in sin, you aren't going to have good relationships. 
Because it's all about you. You're just living selfishly. You're hurting people. You're going to get divorces. People aren't, you aren't going to be able to keep jobs because you aren't walking in love. It's going to cost you if you live in sin. But I'm saying that you're stupid if you live in sin, but God loves you stupid. (laughs) I'm saying God doesn't reject you because you live in sin. He's forgiven you of all sin, past, present, and future. You got eternal redemption, but you're just absolutely stupid to go live in sin. Quit living in sin. There's a lot of reasons to argue against living in sin. But the church has basically done it from the perspective of God is not going to bless you. God won't answer your prayers. You can't be in fellowship with God. Or the extreme of it is you lose your salvation every time you sin and unless you get it confessed. And if you died with an unconfessed sin, you'd go to hell. So the motivation that the church has given to the Christians to live in, uh, to not live in sin, to live holy, is so that God can love you. They tie God's acceptance of you to your holiness. And that's wrong. It's all about your acceptance or rejection of Jesus. If you have accepted Jesus, then you have been eternally redeemed. That is nearly too good to be true news. But you know what that is? That's the gospel. And brothers and sisters, this is the reason the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If we were preaching this good news, if we were telling people that regardless of how sorry you are, God loves you. And He loves you so much He doesn't want to leave you in your sin. He's forgiven you and in the Spirit you're clean, but now He'll help you get over this so that Satan won't take advantage of you. If we were to preach holiness from that perspective, but tell people how much God loves them and the tremendous price that Jesus paid, did you know what that would be? The same power that was evident in the church, people would be cutting holes in the roof to let the sick in. But man, we wonder why people aren't knocking down the doors of the church. Because we're preaching, God's angry. Repent or else. Turn or burn, you sinner. That's not the message that Jesus preached. Jesus went to the woman taken in the very act of adultery and forgave her. And said, go and sin no more. He didn't encourage sin. He didn't approve of sin. But he forgave her. The Old Testament demanded that she be stoned to death. He forgave her. Jesus went to publicans, tax collectors. He went to the people that were rejected by others and extended mercy towards them. And that's what caused the the great revival that he saw. And today we've changed the message. We aren't preaching the same message. We're imputing people's sins unto them. We need to be telling people that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And that's the message that He has given us, is this same message of reconciliation, that we ought to be telling people that God's forgiven your sins. If you've accepted Jesus, your sins are forgiven past, present, and even future tense. Eternal redemption. Sin is obliterated. Sin has been dealt with. It's all a matter of have you made Jesus your Lord. And you know, if there's anybody here today that has just been under religious doctrines and you thought that it was all about you living holy and you're going to church and you're trying to be a good person and you're trying to be holier than you ever have and you you don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, you are really living holy and you are trusting and someday you're going to stand before God and say, God, I hope that the good outweighed the bad. If that's the way you were thinking, hopefully today you've understood that that's not it. You can't atone for your sins. You can't overcome the bad that you've done by doing good. It's Jesus has already dealt with it. Sin has already been dealt with. It's now a matter of what will you do with Jesus? Do you just acknowledge Him as a historical figure? Do you believe that He exists? Or have you actually made Him your Lord? Have you put your total trust in Him? If you were to stand before God today, if the Lord said, what makes you worthy? Would you point to something you've done? Or would you point to a Savior and say, Jesus is what makes me worthy. It's my faith in Jesus. If you point to anything other than Jesus, if you point to your church attendance, your giving record, if you talk about how you've tried to live good, that attitude will send you directly to hell. And there's going to be multitudes of church people 
who have been trying to live a good life, but their faith isn't in Jesus. They believe Jesus existed. They'll even call him the son of God, but their faith isn't in him. And you can prove it by, you know, people come forward in my prayer lines and they say things like, why hasn't God healed me? I fast, I pray, I study the word, I pay my tithes, I'm doing everything I know. Why hasn't he healed me? A person who said something like that has told me why they aren't healed. It's because they are pointing to what they have done, thinking that when they do everything right, then God will respond. Nope, God has already healed you based on what Jesus has done. And yes, you do have to pray and study the Word, but you don't do that to get God to move. You do that to move you, to change you as a weapon against the devil. But anytime you express this thought that, God, I've done this, now you've got to do this, you aren't believing in Jesus. You're believing in yourself. Your faith is in yourself. And there are multitudes of people that have gone to church and acknowledge all the Christian things, but their faith isn't in a Savior. If they were to stand before God and He says, what makes you worthy, they'd immediately point to their good works. And brothers and sisters, I don't want you to do that. That'll send you to hell. You need to have faith in a Savior. If you've never done that, Hopefully today you could understand what salvation is all about. It's not about you becoming a better person. It's not about you trying harder and, and bartering with God. If you'll save me, I'll, I'll give up this and quit that. Jesus has already paid for everything. It's just a matter of will you accept Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He's already paid for everything. Now will you believe it? Will you receive it? Will you make Him your Lord? That's more than just saying words. That's literally an attitude where Jesus becomes your Lord. You submit yourself to Him. If you've never done that, you must be born again. You have to make Jesus your Lord. And it doesn't matter how badly you live. Some of you may have thought before that, you know what, I'm too bad. God couldn't save me. And if you've understood what I've said today, Jesus' sacrifice is infinitely greater than your sin. If you think God couldn't save me, He couldn't forgive me of those things, then what you're doing is making your sins greater than God. You think the badness of your sins is greater than the goodness of God. And man, that's arrogance. Jesus more than compensated. So it doesn't matter how bad you've been. You can be born again today. And if you've already been born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, you need that. That's the next step. Jesus told His disciples not to go anywhere, not to minister, not to do anything until they receive this power. Jesus said, you receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And there's many things that happen. I'm just emphasizing this gift of speaking in tongues. But you get a lot of spiritual gifts. You get the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge. Many things happen. But in the Bible, when people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they spoke with other tongues. And I don't have time to explain that, but I tell you, speaking in tongues is a powerful, powerful gift. If you don't have it, it's like charging hell with a water pistol. (laughs) You have no chance. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need to speak in tongues. And some of you may think, well, man, they don't teach that in my church. Well, most of what I taught today, they don't teach in your church, amen. But it's the truth. And it'll set you free. Amen. Amen. So is there anybody here that would say, you know what, I need to receive, I need to make Jesus my Lord.